Thanks, Omid. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. It was great. <laughs> Way to go, Beck. All right. Those are my four kids up there. I'm Dave, uh, and they are not, I'm not a single parent. My wife has duties at our church this morning, so, but I, Omid asked me this week if I could come and share a little bit more. I was here a couple weeks ago, um, and we talked about David and Goliath, and I wanted to, I decided, hey, you know what, there's actually more to David's story, so it's a great thing for us to dive into. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Uh, God, thank you for Resonate Church, Lord. Thank you for what your purposes are in this place, Lord, the unique calling you have for the people in this church, the individuals in this room right now, Lord, are here with purpose and reason. You've placed them here this morning, got them up, got them here, Lord, and I pray that they would receive well from you this morning and be fed well from you, be challenged and encouraged this morning, Lord. We love you, God. We pray you're glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about, if you were here, uh, we talked about David and Goliath. And I'm sure even if you weren't here, you've heard the story of David and Goliath and the takeaways that we had from that that were, I believe, specific to this place, but also to the individuals um, and actually all followers of Christ. Uh, David's example and story can be something that, that truly um, helps us to understand how we can um, step into our calling and step into what God has, has kind of placed inside of us, the unique calling in each of us. Um, see, we, we talked a lot about not looking to achieve, but simply looking to trust God, who is the author of our lives and also the author of what is and to what extent we're meant to achieve. David, as you recall, just, just kind of going through that story a little bit, he chose not to trust in outward appearances. He chose to withstand rejection and doubt. These are some bullet points we talked about. He chose to play to his strengths and not need to look like everybody else and how he did things. He chose to believe that the same God who delivered him from the lion and the bear when he was a shepherd in the fields, that same God was strong enough to rescue him from this insurmountable threat of this giant Goliath. And he chose to run to the front lines. He didn't just speak, I want to be this guy. He didn't just say, our God is big enough and I'm willing to fight. He actually demonstrated it by rushing to the lines, the front lines of battle. And we as a people recognize that we live in a time and a culture in which there are many things that would keep us back and help cause us to shrink back from what we know in our heart we're meant to do and meant to be. And God is saying, you run to the front lines because I'm the one who's going to fight those battles for you. So we recognize that resonate this church and the people in this room. You have a unique purpose. You trust. We need to trust the strengths of what is the core and the ethos of this place. What this place is called to be. What you're called to be. You're in this room because you believe something about this community connects with what your heart is for this world and how we show and demonstrate Christ to the world. Who he really is. Who is this Jesus of the Bible? That we don't need to look the same. It doesn't need to feel the same as it's always felt. And that we can actually be bold and unafraid. And we remember that Jesus is the ultimate example. That is the core of this place, is to guide people, walk people towards this Jesus. Who was he? What does he represent? How did he save us? What does that salvation mean? 
He didn't do anything by conventional means. Nothing looked, you know, in the life of Jesus. You don't see a lot of sanitary, perfect little churchiness, right? You see an unconventional man who entered the world in an unconventional way. He hung out with the, quote, wrong people, right? His, his death was hideous. It was not a king's death. And then, of course, his rising from the dead. Nothing in this felt or seemed like a way you would say it looks normal in the human, in the, in the humanness of it, but it was yet it was real and it was Jesus and it was powerful. See, David's story has this climactic moment of defeating the giant Goliath. But what we see is the story does not end there. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's not, it's not, hey, end of story and that classic line, right? And he lived happily ever after. No, we get more insight into Jesus' life. He does not, his life continues on after this day. And that's where I want us to land today is what happened after this moment? What happened with David? What do we see? What can we learn? What can we gain from this? This is the value of the word of God. The value of the Bible is that it's alive. It's alive. It's meant to give life. It's not meant to be a book that was written a long time ago that's got stories that we think kind of relate to God and we read on Sunday mornings. No, this is a living Word of God. And that's what makes our faith so powerful because it's not just something of the past, it's something of the present, it's something of the future, it's ongoing. The Bible is a story also about one hero. Many stories about people we've heard and we know the names. We know the names of the, of the individual Bible. Well, there's one hero and his name is Jesus. He is God. It's not the story of a bunch of awesome guys doing awesome things awesomely. Yes, there's great moments and powerful moments and moments to, to lift your hands up and be excited. But overall, the story is about one hero, God, and therefore we get to see behind the scenes. We get to see more. It's imagine, you know, Instagram, but your timeline isn't just your kids' touchdown passes and how one night your spouse surprised you with some flowers and a dinner out. It would be like Instagram, but it shows your kid fumbling the ball and then yelling at you that it's actually your fault that he fumbled the ball because you put too much pressure on him. And then you go home and all you do is you hope is your windows are closed so your neighbors don't hear how you're screaming at your kids and they all think you suck as a parent. That's the, that's the feed, the Instagram feed version of the living word of God because the Bible isn't about perfect people. It's about a perfect God and fallen people. Yes, there are great moments, but the Bible allows for the ugly sides of humanity to be on display so that we can all be reminded that humanity isn't all striving to be perfect and finding yourself constantly despairing if you're not. It's not about living happily ever after. It's about a perfect God who wants to enter into our imperfect lives and do something and make something and actually cause something to happen. First Samuel 17 did not end the story. 14 more chapters in First Samuel cover David's story, and most of the time, David still continues to do the right thing. However, once Second Samuel starts, it seems like his, his life is finally kind of set. It seems like he's finally figured it out, and that's when he has the biggest failure of his life. And this is our lives. This is the reality of our lives. David becomes unspeakably popular after his triumph over Goliath. He was the man. As they say, women wanted him and men wanted to be him. Unfortunately, his popularity didn't go well with the king. 
the people would chant that Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Well, Saul didn't like that. The king Saul, he liked being the man. He wasn't the man anymore. He didn't like that. And, his, and, his, and David's popularity caused Saul to be jealous of him and eventually want to kill him. By the, by the 19th chapter, there's two chapters in the Bible after 1 Samuel 17, chapter 19, Saul's ready to kill him. He even tells his son, Jonathan, who happens to be David's best friend, you need to go kill him. You need to take my guys and you need to go kill David. At one point, we see Saul in the same room as David. He actually throws a spear at him. It seems like the triumph of Goliath is far off and David is being wrongfully pursued at this point. He even, Saul at one point even tries to kill his own son just for defending David. This is how crazed Saul got towards the man who saved Israel three chapters earlier. The reason this matters is because even after the victory over Goliath, David continues to be a sympathetic hero in the story. It's not his fault some crazy psycho king wants to kill him. All he's done is follow God's will, and God has come through with his constant protection. And this is the first takeaway in the life of David after, after the Goliath moment, right? Is that success does not protect us from attack. It often encourages it. Recognize that so many of our stories, we try to do the right thing. And we think if we do the right thing, let's be honest, if we think we do the right thing, then everyone's going to appreciate the fact that we're doing the right thing. Everyone's going to look at me like, you know, you did the right thing. That was the right call. I totally support you in this. In fact, I think you're amazing for doing the right thing. See, we're vindicated in that moment. We feel like we finally figured it out. We've finally done it. But we can't be surprised if that hero moment we may have fades and suddenly we're being unjustly pursued. And attempts are made to defame us or even kill our character. Yeah, it's unlikely we'll have a literal spear thrown at us by some demon-possessed megalomaniac. I get that. But we should not be surprised when we do what we know God would have us do, that people will still find fault, defame, and even go after us. It's just the reality of living in a fallen world. There are countless examples of this. People hating people of great success because jealousy is a real thing. Envy is a real thing, and it leads people to really dark places. If we're not prepared to attack the attack to come, we risk responding in an unhealthy way. Instead, we expect the attacks we are prepared. Instead of instead, if we expect the attacks, we're prepared. And how God would have us respond? This is not normally the case, though. David spends much of First Samuel trying to avoid death. In fact, the entire rest of the chapter of the book, actually, he's trying to avoid death, struggling all along the way, being exiled from his own kingdom, reasoning for his own safety. And despite some moments of seeming clarity with Saul, sometimes where it seems like maybe he'll get this and he actually almost apologizes, Saul keeps going back to this murderous desire and he's a king with an army. It's not just one guy who doesn't like him. It's one guy with a lot of people that can kill him. Despite these moments, the attacks never seem to cease. I lived in Torrance for a number of years, and I love the city of Torrance. Um, we had our, all of our kids were born there. Uh, we uh, had a great family there, great schools, a great, uh, great church we were a part of. We were part of a small group. Our best friends all lived there. We were in a very sweet season of life. 
um, for a long time in Torrance. I had a beautiful neighborhood, a tree-lined street. It was like all the things you could want, right? All the, all the, all the beautiful moments you would kind of picture of having. Unfortunately, we had a neighbor who lived next door to us who hated us. All right, this was after a number of years of trying to bring, we brought, I mean, we had these three little girls, they're now older now, but we had these three little girls, and we would bring flowers over there and cookies, and, you know, if her mail got in our box, we'd knock on the door and try to give it to her, but for whatever reason, she just did not like us. And it got, at one point, we built a deck in my, a little deck, and I mean, we're talking like 11 inches off the ground, nothing, just a little area off of my kitchen to go, and it peeked out to where we could see over her fence, and so we thought, you know what, we'll put a nice topper on that fence, give her a little privacy. As soon as we go up there, she sees us, and, and all that, like, like, angsty, like, unspoken negativity just erupted, and she went off on us. And was telling us about how we talk about her and we all this craziness. We gossip about her and our kids are too loud and our kids are too loud and all you know our kids are too loud. You know all these things. You know she's just she's not she doesn't she's not happy with us at all. And it was really really hard for us because we felt like we've been great neighbors. We haven't done anything wrong. We've we brought her flowers. We brought her cookies. We when her mail is there, we waved her. We say hi. She would go into her garage and she would literally look down, get in the garage, and then she'd like shut the door before she even got out of her car, just so she didn't have to interact with us. And then at one point, she actually did something to her yard where she could kind of stare at us over the fence, and literally she would just glare at us. You guys remember that? All right. Like we would just we would we would play. My kids would be in the trampoline, and she would just be sitting there and just like I mean the look of death. We were all afraid of her, right? every one of us. I mean, she was scary. Um, and it drove, it drove my wife cr- crazy because my wife loves to be neighborly, loves to be loved and liked and pr- appreciated. And, and this woman, I mean, it, it's so funny because looking back on it, like our dog is, is, a, is pretty mellow for the most part. He, he pretty much sits on the couch most of the day. And he's, uh, he's very sweet. And people who have been over to our house, they usually he goes right over to them and he sits and he's nice. But for some reason, it's like he could sense that there was an issue. So whenever she would walk her dog in front of her house, somehow my dog would start freaking out and he would try to, and one or two times he got out the door and would literally jump on this woman's dog. So I'm like, you're now you're forcing interaction with this woman who hates us. All right, completely. One point I think I had to grab him and I was rolling on the ground in the middle of the street while she's yelling at me about controlling my dog. This is not a fun time in our lives for this reason. And the reality is we prayed about this, okay? We sought to make things right. We felt like we were doing things right. We asked each other, are we, are we doing anything? It's like, okay, I can't control. I have four kids. I'm sorry. Yes, they're loud. They're loud for me too. And when, even when we had maybe small moments of victory, nothing really actually changed. I mean, this is what we want. We think, oh, man, if we just persevere, if we try harder, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Well, God did something. He actually moved us out of there. Now, what's interesting is I still own the house. I live up here now because I work at Calvary now, so we live closer to there. But what's interesting is that um, we, didn't have, we didn't have that moment that I wanted where it's like that moment where it's like, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, too. Oh, we just didn't understand each other. We're, you know... Let's embrace, come to church, love Jesus, all those things. It didn't happen. Um, It's interesting, though, that God did demonstrate provision in moving us away from there. Uh, But 
it's funny, we have tenants there now, and we worried a lot about her hassling our tenants. I mean, at one point, at one point, I just as an aside, we, we camp, we brought a camper, uh, we had a friend's uh, RV in our driveway, and it was, and, and honestly, it was sticking out onto the sidewalk probably about six inches. And one night I get a knock on the door, and there's a, there's a cop there, and he's like, yeah, I got a call about your RV. He's like, I'm really sorry. He's like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> That's what the cop said to me. He didn't give us a ticket or anything. He's like, I, uh, and I'm like, I get it. We know what happened. It's fine. And so that's the kind of stuff though. That, that was one of several things. I also got torrents showing up to ask why I have an unpermitted 11 inch deck in my backyard. Well, guess who called on that? So this, these things happen. Okay. It was a little frustrating, but the point, the, the, the best part of the story, honestly, at the end of the day for all the hassling and all that, we move away and who's our tenant now? An LAPD cop. She can't say anything. So it's kind of funny how God works sometimes when you read the scripture about him heaping burning coals on your enemies' heads. I mean, maybe that, was, maybe that was part of it. But the point is, we're called to honor God, but there's no guarantee that others were going to love us for it. That's, just, that's the example that, that David has there. He's done the right thing, and yet he's being pursued. His life is being pursued. We need to trust. Yes, trust the individuals closest to you. Okay, it's not to say that everyone's, if everyone in your life is telling you you're doing the wrong thing and there are people you trust, you, maybe you are. However, we need to trust that God is pointing us in the right direction and honoring him is most important. Second takeaway from this, this part of David's life I want to focus on is that God often gives us a Jonathan in our life. Okay, so Jonathan is the son of Saul, okay? And, and Jonathan is best friends with David. So Jonathan's dad's pursuing the life of his, of his best friend. Jonathan, you can see it all over the, this part of 1 Samuel, is that he encourages him, he looks out for him, he defends him, he actually goes to his father, and like I said, his father throws a spear at him, okay, at one point, because he's defending him, so at his own peril, and he warns David even of Saul's plans. He saves David's life over and over again. And I want us to see that in our lives, when, th- when it feels like things are coming against you, when it feels like you're doing things right, but for some reason there's a Saul or there's a, and that, that could be an entity, it could be an institution, it could just be things that are plaguing you in your life right now that often God gives you a Jonathan. As you look around and see evil pursuing you, it's easy to fixate on the unrighteousness. It's easy to fixate on the on the neighbors, the bad neighbors of the world. It's easy to fixate on the coworkers who are trying to make you look bad. It's easy to fixate on the boss who, who's driving you crazy or the employee. It's easy to look at those things. But what, what, what I believe we can get from the story is look to the Jonathans in your lives. You may feel completely alone, completely unable to get your head above water, but pause for a second and look around your life. There's likely someone, even in this room maybe, that has been there for you in the midst of the hardest times of your life. Maybe they're there for you now. Can we believe that those people are actually gifts from God, that God sees you, he sees it, he sees what you're dealing with, he sees the stress, but he, so because of that, as he's walking you through it, he's giving you these Jonathans. It's interesting, when I was, uh, I grew up in the church, I grew up, um, going to church in Malibu, and I and I always had a, a strong affection for Christ and for the for the church. Um, however, as I got into my high school years and my college years, that fire began to to wane, as it does for many, as it does for many. And I 
began to really question a lot of things. And honestly, I never had a, an outright questioning of God's existence, but I questioned a lot of the way the people of God behaved, which I think a lot of us have done, right? And so part of that was a kind of almost like a disassociation I wanted to have from Christians, more than Christian faith, but Christians. And that kind of, kind of de-evolved into really not knowing what I wanted to do and be. And I was struggling with it. And I decided when I was, I was living in Colorado at this point in my life and I was having a really good time and I was enjoying myself and the worldly pleasures of my life and great friends and all that, but I knew that there was an emptiness in it. So I decided and God decided with me um, as I watched my younger brother get married and seeing kind of not really a, a much of a future going on with my life to say, hey, you know what, I need to kind of give this God thing an opportunity. So I moved back to L.A., and I moved in with a buddy of mine who um, was going to a church, a great church, and I started going to church. And I started again and started to enjoy it, but I still was stuck a little bit because even the guy I was with, he was like an old friend of mine, but he represented a lot of the things I struggle with. A good guy, but a lot of things I struggle with. Part of, honestly, at the end of the day, I just wanted to know that Christians could have fun. <laughs> I really wanted to know that it could be like enjoyable to like live a normal life as a, as a follower of Christ in a good way. And, I, and, God, and there was a guy, a, a friend of mine, to enter my, li not, enter my life um, at that time. His name happened to be Jonathan. It was John Mark was his name. And this guy was the perfect guy for me in that point in my life. He was crazy and hilarious. He definitely was passionate. He was into Christ. He was into God. He was into excitement. But he was also into being a complete idiot half the time, which I just needed to see you could be. You could still be fun and crazy and carefree and, and just enjoy life for all it had and be a follower of Christ. I remember um, one time we went and saw, uh, back, this is going to date me a little bit, when The Phantom Menace, the Star Wars movie, there was, that was the first movie that came, came out after years of no Star Wars. Okay, I like Star Wars, full disclosure, but I grew up with Star Wars, so this was the first movie, it's a big deal in L.A., Okay, like went to Westwood, got in line, got in, went to the Fox Theater in Westwood, huge theater, totally packed, people in their gear, you know, Darth Vader's and all that. And John Mark is the guy who says, you, you got it. He's like, watch this. So he's like, he goes, I, he goes, I go, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to go up there and I'm just going to fall down in front of everyone. So he starts running around the theater, running around the theater. And like on the third lap, people are getting excited. He literally just flies face down and face plants in the middle of the theater. It was unbelievable. See, my son appreciates this. This is the juvenile side of me. I teach middle school. But the point is, is watching him make a complete idiot of himself, to me, was one of the most hilarious moments ever. It was awesome. And this is before phones and all that, or iPhones, so I couldn't record it. But it was a representative of, in this season of life, I need to know that there was a guy that could, could, that could help me to understand that you could be a Christian and be a goofball. And be, and be crazy, and be different. And God provided that for me for that season of my life. Look at the people in your life that he's done, because I can also tell you on the other side, there have been people that have come alongside me in some of the harder moments of my life with the words of encouragement and the consistency that I've needed. Third takeaway from the, the life of David post-Goliath is that we, have, we, have, we should have a goal of not reacting in our flesh, which is probably the hardest thing of all because I am a reactor. I react all the time. Like I am not good at hiding. I'm not uh, a poker face in the moment. 
in the moment you give me bad news, uh, but you give me good news, I'm great. Like, oh, I'm excited for you, but, uh, but I struggle with this. But you see two times in, in chapter 24 and chapter 26 where David has the opportunity to kill Saul and chooses to spare him. His rationale has nothing to do with Saul showing any glimmer of hope, by the way. He doesn't have empathy because Saul is starting to come around. His friends in the moment are saying, this is God. God is actually doing this for you. God has provided. It's, it's clearly God is saying, hey, you can now take him out because he's trying to kill you. It's totally justified. It's fair, David. Do it. But David says, no. He, he, both times he says, I'm not going to come against the anointed of God. See, what David's looking at is what is God calling him to do, even though in the moment, the human reaction, the physical reaction that he has is obviously to defend himself. It's to get rid of this. He's been going through this now for a long enough period of time that he's had this person pursuing him. He has an opportunity to take this person out. And everything in the culture would have said he's justified, and yet he knew that God had anointed this man, and for whatever reason, it was not his job to kill this man, Saul. It wasn't because of Saul. It wasn't because Saul was a good guy. It was about David's heart. There are situations in our lives where we have a justifiable right and reason for revenge. Someone slanders us, our instinct is to slander them. Someone hurts us personally, we want to go after them. We want to fight fire with fire. This is ingrained in us. Our culture opens that door because fair is fair. You do it to me, I'll do it to you. But the example of David here is much like the example of the true hero of the Bible, Jesus, when he says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, we know this scripture, right? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. What is the rationale here? Why is David modeling this? Why is it so hard for us mentally and practically to get on board with this? Because often our focus in these moments is on the person offending us. We look at the person offending us what David is modeling and what Jesus is calling people to do when he says, turn the other cheek, it's not about that person. It's about honoring God. It's the focus on God because God's way equates to the actual things we want in life. We talk about joy. We talk about peace. We talk about hope. If, you, if we want those things to be part of who we are, part of how we live, part of what we enjoy because it's what every person wants. Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, every human being wants peace in their life. They want inner peace in their life. They want to live with joy. That's what people want. And so God is saying it has to be different. It has to look different. It can't be the reaction that you want to have that leads it. That's not going to get it done. It's going to be, how are you looking at me? Are your eyes on me? Are you following me? Are you hearing me? Because I am the pathway to that place. And that's, what, that's the example that David has here. He's looking at his guys, his buddies, and saying, I get what you're saying. I have a right to kill Saul. I get it. But that's not, I'm not after being right here. I'm after God. I'm after what he is calling me to because I believe, I know with every fiber of my being, that's where I'm going to find what I want. And that's the example. That's where we have to get inside ourselves. We have to really fight for this a little bit because our flesh doesn't want us to live this way. But we have to know in the deepest parts of our soul, this place inside of us, that that's right. God has attached himself to that. And we can fight against it 
But if we really stop and look inside, we know that that's truth. Resonates with us. When we focus on God, we see his perspective. We capture his heart. We see the mosaic he's creating. And this is where we want to exist. If you want those peace, if you want that joy. In Romans 14 and 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not doing normal worldly things. It's right, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God demonstrates all through scripture, scripture that he will provide what we want. But we need to look to him first. In Isaiah chapter 31, there's a few verses about this. But it, it starts with saying, The Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. There's, there's, see, the thing is, God is sovereign over all things. God's will and purposes can't be thwarted. However, God is calling people to, to live a life where they come to him. And there's grace for that. And he says, when that happens, it said, the, the, the prophet Isaiah says, your ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go. And the Bible talks about making ourselves, ourselves a living sacrifice. And so much of that is just getting ourselves in the altar and saying, okay, God, what would you have me do? But our reactions in the moment are so often connected to our kind of the emotional fixation on the individual who's hurting or coming against us. What Jesus, David models here, and Jesus, Jesus demonstrated all the way to his death is that we can pause and ask God what his purpose for us is in these situations. And we will likely feel compelled towards that more God-led path. But ultimately remember, God's ways are better. Fourth and final takeaway from the life of David post-Goliath. There's always room for redemption. And this is maybe the most, maybe the sweetest part of the gospel is that is the redemption. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news that God has redeemed. See, the story of David and Bathsheba happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Is probably the most, second most well-known David story in the Bible, right? Goliath and David being the first. It's immensely important because it is one of the many times in Scripture where God allows us to see the other side of David's Instagram feed, if you will. See, everything's set up to be perfect at this point because at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies horrifically. Jonathan dies too, which is very sad as well. Saul dies, Jonathan dies, David mourns them at the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel. But now we have this kind of set up here where it appears as if David's life is now fine. He's finally gotten Saul out of the way. After chapter after chapter and years of pursuing and having to flee, and literally, he at one point, he, David even got exiled and went to and went to Gath, went to the and land of the Philistines, the people he had beaten. He had to go live there for a while, because just to get away from Saul, he's finally over it. And it feels like at this point, it's like okay, it's going to be good now. It's going to be good. But of course, we know if we know the story, the process, David is, uh, you know, when he's supposed to be in battle with his people, and for some reason, the warrior David stays home. He's on his rooftop. He spies the beautiful Bathsheba. She's actually described as beautiful in the Bible. 
He summons her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant with his child. Then he does what he's do. He places her husband, Uriah, is his name, in the front lines of battle with the express purpose and intent that he would be killed so that then David could marry Bathsheba. And at this point, we can see he has definitely not managed to live happily ever after. This isn't the part of the movie that, that you would end on. He's devastated by his actions as he's called out by Nathan. He's called out and he admits it. He's devastated. And things just begin to kind of go downhill at that point. His sin with Bathsheba points to our own need of redemption. He has these horrific consequences. Horrific. God tells him the child that was conceived in this, in this relationship is, go, is not going to live. Can't imagine much worse than that. As terrible as that sounds, the takeaway from that is that there are, that as it, in that these actions we undertake to gratify ourselves, ignoring God's preferred action, have consequences. The reality is that sin does have consequences. Okay? We can't ignore that. Part of the reason redemption is so powerful is because there's consequences to the poor choices that we make. And sometimes those are significant. However, God never removes David's destiny from him. God, David's actions are challenged, but at the soul level, David has not forfeited what God has declared. David is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. In 1 Kings 15, verse 5, which comes later, the writer says, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of the life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So he actually still says, David did all these things well. The focus is on David did perform acts as well. David's heart was still inclined to do the right thing, yet he, he was fallible. It doesn't say he was a terrible person with no destiny, and he had forfeited everything, and he has no hope. He maintains his calling even as he deals with those consequences. But David models two important things that he learned right in the midst of this. One, he knew his failure was more connected to his rejection of God than man. He connects his actions, not so much to these people who he does feel bad about, but mostly to the fact that he knows he has failed in this amazing connection he had had with God and gone against that. But because he knew it was between him and God, he knew that God was the only place that was a fountain of unlimited redemption opportunity. He knew that then he could go to God, worship God, and that God would redeem him. Even from this horrific sin that he committed, murder and adultery, he knew that he could go to God and God could set him free. Even as he has to confess that he sinned against the Lord. And as we see the line of David unfold, we recognize that God had planned to use him all along and the purposes of God were not thwarted by David's sin. In Paul, in the book of Acts chapter 14, he says, he says God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. See, Paul draws this connection purposely between David and Jesus. David was not Jesus. David was fallible. David sinned. David made mistakes. David fell apart. Right when things got good, that's when David went bad. All these things are true about him. The purposes God has for your life continue because our sin and reconciliation is part of the process. Sin and reconciliation, mistakes and redemption are part of our journey with God. 
They are both interwoven into the fabric of the life and the story that God has created in our lives. The Bible places David as a key part in the lineage of Jesus for a reason. He wants to show us that our Savior wants broken people connected to him. He has a line of brokenness and despair connected to him because that's who he came for. He did not run from the ashamed. He does not reject the hopeless. On the contrary, those are the ones he came to die for. It's us. It's us. We're the ones who are broken. We're the ones who are ashamed. We're the ones who have failed and fallen. And I'm not saying we live in that because that's not what God's called us to. The conviction of God and the mercy of God says that we can be kings even as we are broken people. The outpouring of God's love, the very definition of God's love, the gospel itself is most beautifully illustrated in the cross of Christ. For our mistakes, our errors, our disobedience, the Messiah came and died on that cross. He took it all for us, for these moments, for our desire, for our need to be better, for our broken moments, our tough reactions, our tough just dealings in everyday life and the mistakes we made. Let's face it, we rarely recognize an attack before it's coming. Our reactions are often terrible and full of our flesh, right? Think about, think about driving on the 405 freeway. Or maybe I'm the only one who gets like a little road ragey sometimes, okay. Okay, the 10 freeway, wherever it is. We don't see the people often in our lives, the Jonathans, we don't often see them. We don't often appreciate them. We take them for granted. For this reason, God, we have the opportunity to be redeemed and we have the opportunity to ask God for help. His death on the cross did not simply open a pathway for our eternity. It also broke down. The Bible says in Ephesians, says, Jesus' death broke down the middle wall of separation between God and man, that we can freely access our God now. See, all of these things, all of what I've just described, this idea of being not reactionary, this idea of seeing the people in our lives that God has placed, this idea of knowing that God is a redeemer and living in that. This idea of doing what God would have us do and not what culture says we're supposed to do. It's all not easy to do, and it's all not meant to be done in our own strength. It's all meant to be done because of our relationship and connection to God through the Holy Spirit. This God's Spirit has come, comes into our lives to help. That's why he's called a helper. So when that middle wall was broken down, the Holy Spirit is entering in. And he's saying, do you need help? The gospel is not about our achievement, but our trust in that truth, the grace of God. And God walked it out and proved it on the cross. So we're going to enter into a moment in time we call communion in a moment here. Um, communion tables over there, we have bread and we have probably juice, I assume. Some kind of juice, right? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We all stand up. As you go to eat the bread, remember that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, knowing he would be betrayed, broke bread with his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And when he took the drink, 
we dip the bread in the drink and we recognize it's, it's God, Jesus' blood shed for us. All the things we just talked about, all your opportunity from this day forward to be able to connect with God and have him help you is represented in that blood that he shed. He's a promise keeper in that sense. He made a declaration to you. So when you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember that, reflect upon that. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, thank you that you love us, Lord. Thank you that you've called us to great purposes in our lives. And Lord, thank you that you're in this with us, God. You are so good. Jesus, you are so good, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would, we would be able to reflect upon you and be empowered by you to, to live our lives for you, God, and trust that you are working all the other things out for us. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys can go ahead and go.